0: Welcome to the Nutracast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. Gut health, it's everywhere. I can't go a day without hearing about the microbiome or the launch of a new probiotic. But the more we learn about this enigma within us, the more questions arise. So, who better to talk about this than a practicing gastroenterologist and clinical trials investigator with over 25 years and 150 clinical trials under her belt? Joining us now is Dr. Sabine Hazen, CEO of ProgenaBiome and Ventura Clinical Trials. Welcome to the NutriCast, Dr. Hazen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For those
1: who don't know, what is ProgenaBiome? So progenobiome was uh, named basically from your progeny, essentially progena, progeny, from your genes to your biome, right? So we all believe certain diseases are genetically inherited, but are they really genetically inherited? And that's really the question that I've had stepping into this whole microbiome world. Can we really say Crohn's disease is inherited? Or are we just inheriting the microbes from the mom that creates the Crohn's disease, right? And so from your genes to your microbes, understanding disease. And that's the reason for progenobiome.
0: That is so interesting the way you phrase that. And it's probably something that a lot of people haven't thought about just yet. When did you realize the significance of the gut microbiome?
1: So 25 years ago, I used to be a a fellow in GI and I was presenting a poster on visceral hyperalgesia, which was uh, oversensitive receptors in the gut that were thought to be the etiology the behind uh, irritable bowel syndrome. And I was doing studies on non-cardiac chest pain, and uh, I was presenting one of my posters at uh, American College of Gastroenterology meeting, and Dr. Neil Stolman came to me and said, Let's walk around and look at all the posters and then pointed out some posters on the microbiome and uh, fecal transplant or microbiome transplant. Some people like to call it microbiome transplant. I like to call it refloralization, which is basically putting microbes from a healthy donor to an unhealthy donor. And so essentially, that was kind of the first seed that was planted from Dr. Stolman. And, you know, A colleague of mine had a condition called C. diff, which was a bacteria that you catch from taking antibiotics. Back then, we used to think it was actually contaminated by people transmitting it in hospitals. But actually, when we look at the genetic sequencing, which is basically the microbes, the the whole genetic shape of the microbes in the gut, we've come to find that C. diff is actually an imprint. It's in us it's 10 million years old. And therefore that imprint of C. diff only comes on and secretes its toxin when you give it antibiotics. And so when people were having C. diff, Clostridium difficile, this bacteria, the treatment that was successful after you tried multiple antibiotics was fecal transplant or microbiome transplant. And so I'll always remember I called Dr. Stolman and I said, how do I do this? I have a doctor that's dying from this infection. I've tried all sorts of of antibiotics, nothing's working. And then kind of had to, you know, he told me and I had to figure out also my own methods of doing it to still stay sterile, right? Because you're kind of playing with fecal material. Nobody likes to do that. And that was the first time really the first case. And I think for all of us GI doctors that do that procedure I think the first case is really the one that really wakes you up. It's like seeing a Martian, like Dr. Barodi, who's the pioneer of fecal transplant said, you know, it's like seeing a Martian and asking if there's life on on Mars, you know, you're seeing a Martian in your (laughs) doorstep and you go, oh my God, there's life on Mars, right? So it was the same thing for us. I think what happened is, you know, you see a colon that's ulcerated and ugly looking, and then you do... The procedure, and you put microbes from a healthy donor into it, and then the colon becomes normal and the patient is asymptomatic and cured. And you go, Wow, what happened? And then you keep doing it. And so for me, I was always, you know, I was never a fan of that procedure because it is playing with stools. Let's face it, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not the most attractive uh, procedure ever. But what happened is, so I would enter patients into clinical trials. And in the world of clinical trials, I was known as the queen of C. diff (laughs) because I would enroll a lot of patients in those trials, but with always the intent to essentially do fecal transplant or microbiome transplant if they were not successful in the clinical trial. And so over the years of doing these trials and then moving my patients to the realm of doing that procedure, A lot of things started popping up that, you know, a lot of Martians essentially, where you kind of say, wow, I've improved the patient's arthritis. I didn't cure it, but I've improved it. Or a patient with chronic urinary tract infections all of a sudden is better. Or, you know, and then you start reading the data from your colleagues, you know, Dr. Colleen Kelly, who published uh, years ago two patients with alopecia areata who grew hair. And you ask yourself, well, what is growing hair when all you're doing is putting microbes into a colon? My own case, which was really, I, I nearly fell off my chair, was a patient that was elderly with C. diff who also had Alzheimer's and he was dying. And the wife came to me to do fecal transplant, microbiome transplant, and I'll just call it microbiome transplant moving forward. And essentially I couldn't find a donor for him I tried antibiotics because I really didn't want to do it he was elderly the risk of colonoscopy risk of transplant and then when nothing was helping and I literally tried everything on this gentleman I decided to use his wife's fecal material as the donor and six months later I kept seeing him in my office and little by little he was like he was getting better. Like his memory was getting better. And then six months later, he remembered his daughter's date of birth and he was correcting me in my HMPs. Like I was asking him, well, when, what happened here? And he was correcting me and he goes, and he would say, well, I told you that last visit. And I would flip through my chart and and realize, wow, he did tell me that on the last visit. Right. Oh and my so gosh. that case was really to me, the, and It was interesting because I do clinical trials. I was trying to put him on a clinical trial for Alzheimer's, for a new medication for Alzheimer's, and he failed because he was too sick. His mini mental status was 20. And so what happened was I did a mini mental status on him before, so I knew what his score was. And I also had a questionnaire. You know, when you do a mini mental status for those people that don't understand, there is a a diagram that you have to to draw and it's basically two squares and a triangle on top of the square and they intersect, right? And it's very difficult for people with Alzheimer's to recreate those diagrams. Most people that are you know, aware, et cetera, recreate the diagram, but for people that don't, it's very difficult. So this gentleman on screening for the Alzheimer's study could barely make those squares and triangle. And after transplant, they're exactly a square and a triangle. I mean, it was just, and so when people, you know, it took a year and a half to publish that case report and it wasn't even published in one of those big journals because nobody really believed it. And I even would send the questionnaires to the, the reviewers and say, look, what did that, right? And then finally it got approved because there was no questioning. But this, this is the case that, you know, got Dr. Sheldon Jordan at UCLA, to pay attention to me and say, wait, what did you do exactly? What's going on? And that was kind of the beginning for me of progenobiome and going to, you know, the the doctor Feingold who wrote the book on uh, anaerobic infections in humans. And I asked him the questions. I said, what is causing memory improvement? And he gave me this paper, this abstract. And he said, put this in a safe. When you, I've cultured stools of patients with Alzheimer's And when you find this bacteria, put it in a safe when you buy your lab and you create the lab. And he kind of told me what to do. He said, you're going to find this bacteria and that's or this this marker in the gut for Alzheimer's and you're going to understand Alzheimer's better. And that was his passion. He died at 97 years old and he passed on everything to me two and a half years ago, his books, patents, his family passed it on to me. And I felt it was a sign for me to just step into this world and to understand the microbiome because like you said, you know, it's out there. Everybody's talking microbiome, microbiome, and what does it mean? And also, you know, probiotics, you know, gut health, but what does it mean? We certainly see a lot of people that are pushing these lab tests, but we don't even understand what is a normal microbiome and how can we compare one human to another So there's so much research that needs to be done in this field. We're literally, you know, at the surface. We truly are.
0: And wow, that that is so remarkable. My head is still uh, spinning from what you just told me about that patient of yours. And it really cements the idea that everything is tied to the gut microbiome.
1: Potentially, right? Maybe everything, maybe not everything. Maybe some things are neurological primary, maybe, you know, so... You know, I tend to look, I did a study on Crohn's disease uh, years ago, and that was the beginning of uh, a beautiful relationship with Dr. Thomas Barotti, because he was the doctor that was pushing MAP therapy for Crohn's disease, which is, you know, bacteria in the cow and cow milk and everything. And he was, he believes and believed that if you treat these patients, you essentially resolve Crohn's disease because you're treating the bacteria. We, we've shared patients over the years that you know, most likely had that, that we couldn't prove it. But there is a test now that we're doing that is showing in certain patients that, yes, MAP could be one, but also there could could be patients that are a genetic predisposition. And there are other patients where maybe it's not MAP, maybe it's another bacteria, maybe it's a virus, maybe it's an imbalance. So I think we have to be open to the possibilities. And I think, you know, I think scientists in general And science in general fails when it categorizes everybody to be on the same platform and everybody to require the same pill, because we're all different. How could we possibly require the same pill?
0: Right. And you have a book, and I was reading that you mentioned for the best uh, fecal transplant results, you say- one must understand the microbiome of the donor. So just going back to your patient who his wife was the donor, I mean, what what do people need to know if they were to get a fecal transplant about their donor?
1: Well, I believe in transparency, right? So the same thing that grows hair can also make you lose hair. The same thing that, you know, improves arthritis can also cause arthritis. So I believe in transparency in products. So I'm very fortunate because I work with a lot of brilliant physicians. One of the physicians that I work with is Dr. Alex Roots, who basically is a huge figure in the world of, you know, microbiome transplant and, uh, you know, has his own stool bank. And I like to call when I can't find a perfect donor for my patients within the family, because my my whole thing is really utilizing family members. Familial fecal transplant is really my, my vision. But there are some people that don't have kids, don't have a spouse, don't have family. And that's where, you know, you count on pharmaceutical products or, or stool banks to help out. And so I'm fortunate because when I call Alex and I say, look, I need a donor, you know, he'll tell me this donor is this. She's an English professor, she craves oranges, she's we've done a whole suicidal, she's not suicidal, she's healthy, she's skinny, she no heart disease. No past medical history. And so I tend to trust that donor because I know that, you know, he likes to put it as uh, he he likes to say, well, I'm giving you the Greek goddesses of my survival. (laughs) And so I'll take them, you know, and those are rare to have to begin with. So I'll take them and I trust him because he's a physician. He follows, you know, the ethics board. And so that's why I'm more into. I think we need to get, as as we step into the world of microbiome, we need to start having a little bit more transparency of who is your donor, right? Because if you look at sperm bank, for example, you know, when you're getting some sperms of a kid that you're going to have, you know, everything about the person, right? And, and really the sperm bank is responsible to tell you all that information. So I think it should be the same thing here. If we're going into a fecal transplant, I think The donor matters, you know. I certainly wouldn't want, as a patient, to swap C diff with, you know, microbiome of a person that's a drug abuser or suicidal person, or
0: right. So it's all about finding the healthiest person. Yes. So who qualifies for refluorization or or these fecal transplants? Um, Is there like a checklist you go off of?
1: So right now, the FDA allows us to do fecal transplant, microbiome transplant on patients that are C. diff positive. So in other words, you have Clostridium difficile, this bacteria that I told you, and this bacteria you've tried twice to kill it with antibiotics and it doesn't work. So that's where you start considering doing refluorization or microbiome transplant. Essentially, that's the one you know, thing that's sure that we can do. Uh, Of course, we were put on hold during COVID because nobody wanted to risk, you know, fecal material with COVID patients. I think, you know, most banks have conquered and there's guidelines that have been set for in the event of, uh, you know, COVID screening, et cetera. So I think that's important. Our lab actually developed uh, an assay where we look for COVID by genetic sequencing of the whole, we found the whole virus in the stools in 100% of patients who were positive by nasal swab and throat swab. So when we analyze our stools for donations or for transplant for family members, we make sure that there's no COVID in there by doing this pipeline to look at the virus. However, you know, the the guidelines are basically, you just check the throat swabs and make sure, or nasal swab and make sure that your patient is COVID negative. So that's one of the, the patient's category that gets fecal transplant, microbiome transplant. The second category is of course, you know, there's everything else is in research. You know, when you talk about, should we be doing, you know, microbiome transplant on Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, autism? Yeah, I mean, that's all in research. So I actually got approved and yesterday we um, consented our first patient for autism using the sister as the donor familial transplant so i'm very excited about that i'm excited to see the data it may work it may not work that's not going to stop me from doing other kids because i think we need to see right there there's definitely there was uh, research that was already set forth by dr adams that basically showed that 50% of kids improved their autism symptoms from microbiome transplant. So the the key in research is to reproduce that data, right? So if if we're able to reproduce that data as an independent lab, as an independent site, as an independent research center, I think that shows validity and reproducibility to the research, which makes it valid really, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, that's really exciting. And I, I do know that there is quite a bit of research out there that does show that people with autism do have dysbiosis. Is that correct?
1: Yes, so we actually, we were one of the papers that showed it in, and there's more papers coming out, but we showed it in a case of triplets where the mom had three babies in her belly and two of them were normal and one of them was not. And the one that was not looked like she inherited the microbiome from the mom. That was just the overgrowth of the microbes. That was probably the reason for her autism.
0: Interesting. Does your lab just focus solely
1: on the microbiome research? So Ventura clinical trials actually has been on the forefront of a lot of pharmaceutical products. We do a esophagitis, a gastritis studies. We've done, we do all sorts of colitis studies, Crohn's disease. So we have done a wide variety of clinical trials, and essentially from ankle sprain all the way to canker sores, you know, research is research. So whether you bring a product to market, I enjoy being in the trenches of the cutting edge, you know, here I am with COVID and I know what are all the trials on COVID because I have access to, you know, any trials that I want to take on at Ventura Clinical Trials. So it's really the ability to allow me to see what's going on in the world of clinical research we've been doing this a while. We've had FDA audits, happy to report. We've never had any 483. The FDA you know, uh, has said we are doing great research. So I'm still continuing that because I believe that if a product is good, the product needs to go to market and the research needs to be done well for that product to make it to market. We're working with a company right now that's actually very exciting to me because it it touches on the microbiome it's a company that has that is developing a capsule that will be going at every level of the bowels and suctioning some um, specimen because right now in the microbiome space all we can do is really take a sample when the patients give us the sample, mm-hmm. but that's not really collecting the full picture of the microbiome. The full picture of the microbiome is, well, what does the microbiome look like in the cecum compared to the rectum? What does it look like in the stomach compared to the rectum? So I think that's, I'm very excited about this, uh, this clinical trial because it'll help us not only collect and understand the microbiome a little bit better, but also that same device can be used as a release of material in the cecum when we need to do refloralization. So we don't have to do a colonoscopy if we need to. So the research coming up is really exciting. I'm very fortunate to be doing that with venture clinical trials. Progena Biome is really the, the company and the genetic lab that's sponsoring all the clinical trials on the microbiome. And we essentially are writing the dictionary of microbes and disease. We wanna see and find markers for each disease that we can, you know, say, yes, this is the same marker is present in a thousand patients with autism, a thousand patients with Crohn's, a thousand with Alzheimer's. And really, you know, we're just at the beginning, we're writing the dictionary essentially. So you know, I always say this research is, is long. We need a lot of people to help us. Uh, I'm very fortunate that doctors, my colleagues that do microbiome transplant, Alex Gurudez, Neil Stolman, Colleen Kelly, my biome squad, I like to call them, are helping me. You know, I'm very fortunate that I have doctors at NIH also that are helping me and also looking at it because I'm the kind of person that will never publish something unless I have like 20 people look at everything. Um, And that's probably why I haven't published so much because I'm always re-verifying and re-verifying and making sure everybody's on a consensus and saying, yes, you're right, put it out there. So,
0: And speaking of putting things out there, you are the co-author of a book called Let's Talk Shit, which examines the microbiome. Um, Tell me about that book and and some of those key takeaways.
1: So I called it that because um, I wanted transparency. I didn't want to sugarcoat it with microbiome. Let's talk microbiome. Well, you know, I mean, people are going to say what what the hell is that, right? <laughs> I wanted to say it as it was so people can see. You know, fecal material matters. I mean, obviously there is something in there. What it is in there, we don't know yet. Is it microbes? Is it something else? We don't know, but that's, I wanted the public to understand. And I think I wanted the public to understand a number one reason is what I'm seeing in the microbiome is a diseased microbiome. You know, we're, we're seeing with increase in autism, increase in Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, MS, ALS, cancer, the microbiome of humanity is getting sicker and sicker. And so we need to have people understand that if it's getting sicker and people are getting diseases. You've got to intercept it now when you're young and healthy to protect it and to understand that everything you're putting in your body needs to have, you know, sound research. When people tell me, oh, this is good for you, I say, show me the data. Where's the data that shows that eating this product is gonna improve my microbiome or improve my longevity? Right. There is no data. It's always hearsay until people do actually the long studies and that take a long time and and research. So I wanted people to understand the importance of a good healthy microbiome uh, to preserve the microbiome of humanity because if if the microbiome of humanity disappears, humanity disappears. You know, Albert Einstein used to say, if bees disappear, humanity disappears. Think about what the bees bring to the world, right? Not Mm -hmm. only in fruits and plants that are growing, but also, you know, their honey, the pure honey from the bee is the microbiome of the bees. So I think we need to understand that also as humans, everything, every animal that's secreting, you know, microbiome waste has a power to nourish the planet, to continue the survival of the planet, of the fruits, of the vegetables, you know, fertilizers is just that it's microbiome. So a good fertilizer will give you some great fruits and vegetables. A poor fertilizer will not. A diseased fertilizer will not. So it's all about the microbes.
0: And if the title is any indication, you use humor when you're talking about gut health. Have you found that that's the best way to discuss gut health with
1: patients and clients? A hundred percent. I think humor in life equals health. Humor... You know, if people cannot laugh about things, then, you know, it's, it's a sad life. So I think humor is, is crucial in health. And I think, uh, you know, to pass, this is a, a dry topic, right? I mean, when you talk about microbes and it's a sleeper, right? So, you have <laughs> Well, to for think- you and
0: me, I think, you know, we would have a good time like nerding out on the gut microbiome, but for, yeah, the average person, maybe not so much.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I tell, I, t- I say microbiome around my house and my girls are like, oh God, mom, again, microbiome. <laughs> <laughs> my microbiome. husband is the same way. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we have passion over that, but not everybody sees the passion. Right. So you have to make it funny. Definitely.
0: Dr. Hazen's book, Let's Talk Shit, is available on Amazon. Dr. Hazen, CEO of Progenobiome and Ventura Clinical Trials. Thank you so much for coming on the NutriCast today. Thank you so much for having me. If you like what you just heard, you could subscribe to the NutraCast wherever you get your podcast. You can also head to nutraingredients usacom for even more Nutri-related content. Thank you for listening. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutraCast next week.